those are always the ones where you're like, why do I play this fucking game? <laughs> <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to the Slums Cast. I'm your co-host, Neuropanzer, still recovering my voice from World 2021. And I'm Josh, aka Orbital Tangent, still Netrunner's okayest player. For those of you who have not seen, well, none of you have seen the Slums Cast, but for those of you who have not heard the Slums Cast before, this is a podcast about genuinely trying and spectacularly failing to be good at Netrunner. Although actually, I don't know, this episode's slightly different. It's, it's a little atypical. Don't judge us for this. This podcast usually will not make you better at Netrunner and usually will not make you a better person. I think that that's probably the case this week, but a lot of things are very up in the air. So honestly, we will see. Again, don't judge us. It, it is our mission statement, but we don't always live up to that. I have an intro question. As we know, every single episode before we even finish all of the administrative business at the start of the episode, the intro question is the first thing that we do. The intro question that I have is, who or what won Worlds? You know what? I think I'll tell you, but first, cut the feed. Why? Well, we just can't have that level of, of genius on this cast, but I suppose if we're going to do it anyway. He's the winner of 2018 European... Uh, na- no, not nationals, continentals. That would be continentals, right? Europe is a continent, not a nation, correct? Yeah, it really was. Yeah. Uh, fuck. <laughs> All right, I'm going to start over. See, we're already getting into the flux. Uh, he's the winner of the 2013... Motherfucker. <laughs> One last shot. Sorry. All right. I'm good. I suppose I should introduce our guest. He's the winner of the 2018 European Continental Championship. He is the winner of 2021 Online Worlds. It is Patrick Gower. What's your last name? Gower. Gower. <laughs> very pleased to be Patrick here. Patrick Gower. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's me, aka Rotom Appliance. Rotom, how, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm great. Thank you. I'm uh, I'm back down to earth after a week of uh, just working, basically. That's what I've been doing. Not played any Netrunner at all since the event. I think that makes sense. You've proved some important things regarding Netrunner and (laughs) whether or not there are people who are better at Netrunner in the world than you at the current moment. So taking a week off isn't that bad. Yeah, I was just enjoying it, just just chilling. But uh, yeah, I don't know what I've proven just yet. We'll probably discuss it at some point. At the very least, I think what you're pointing out is uh, it's one of the crazy things about these hobbies. Even though very, very large things happened in Netrunner lately, I mean, I spent an entire weekend essentially working. I I was commentating, I think I totaled over 24 hours during those three days. And then I just went back to work like normal. (laughs) Pretty tiring. I think, yeah, Yeah. you were the only person doing it all three days, weren't you? I I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can't imagine doing that. You know, I've been on and done the odd game or two, but just talking for three days nonstop. Don't think it would work for me. That's got to be one of the things that uh, is a big sort of culture shock. I I know it was for me TOing OTG, and it had to be for you doing commentary pants. And I would assume same feeling for you, Patrick, where it feels like something 
huge happened. You did a thing that was super big and you look at the rest of the world, you're like, don't you know who the fuck I am? And then the rest <laughs> of the world's like, no, we don't even know what the fuck Netrunner is. <laughs> As a hobby, it is extremely difficult to explain in a nutshell to work colleagues or to yeah. just people who don't know anything about it. I mean, I also play chess. That was like my first hobby mm-hmm. since the age of seven. And everyone's heard of chess, right? At least they know what it is. But trying to explain this in a way that, that holds somebody's interest is... Uh, it's impossible, basically. I mean, I don't know. You'll have tried to do it as well, right? You you start yeah. talking and then you think, oh, that just no one understands. It's a card game. It's a collectible card game. It's quite niche. And I won. So that's it. That's all you need. Yeah, <laughs> I won. That's all you need to know. I love yeah. that. <laughs> anyway, I won. I did, I did tell some of the people above me in the company so they wouldn't criticize me for being completely useless on Monday. <laughs> I did not get any sleep at all. <laughs> yeah. I shared footage from the stream like the the youtube shared that with a few friends it was like hey you know if you're i mentioned i was doing this thing over the weekend if you're curious at all about the game or about like why i didn't answer any of your text messages you can check this out and i got one response that i think is just a little more open than many of the other responses i got which was i'm not going to watch any of this i'm happy that it made you happy though (laughs) yeah Yeah. now my parents asked for a link to just the interview part you know and i sent it to them and to my sister and i got an email from my mom a day later saying it's quite technical and nothing else (laughs) (laughs) didn't offer any opinion on you know advanced assembly lines versus red level clearance or any of that stuff just it's technical fair enough <laughs> listen pants it's fine you ghosted me but as your friend i i just i, I can't do it just dorks be dorkin just tell me dorks be dorkin and like you know i get it i feel the same way about many of their hobbies so i, I get it. it it is a bit of a, a a cognitive dissonance where i'm like other people don't spend that much time and energy on netrunner what the fuck they're the ones with something wrong with them yeah yeah obviously <laughs> You know, with this intro, though, so we, we've got the intro question answered. We have the special guest answered. And I'm sure that a question on many people's minds right now is, what next? Where does the Slums cast go with this introduction? And I'd feline if I said I didn't know what segment we're going to do next. What? It's a pun, Josh. What? Josh, come on. Everyone knows that cats are loaves. Loaves are bread. It's a bread pun. Oh, I know where this is going, but I don't approve. So we are once again starting off the episode with baking up Think Loaves, and we're going to get a quick bakery, a few bonus loaves of just an introduction to Rotom Appliance. And I'd like to start off with the basics here. So what originally got you into Netrunner? It was through another friend group, actually, an online game that I used to play, a social deduction game, basically, Mm -hmm. called Mafia. But most people, if they know it, probably know it as Werewolf. It was through that group, and someone posted a a thread on the forum just saying, here's this cool game, you know, let's try it. And a bunch of us started playing, and I was the only one that carried on doing it. All of the others played it for a while, and although a couple of them did watch some of this, they tell me. But yeah, that's how I got into it, really, just sort of found it more and more interesting. And just as the others left, I, that was it. I was, I was into the community. Although I took my time over buying the cards, obviously. I guess I was shy or something. Whenabouts was this? I think it was 2014. So it was just after Honor and Profit had come out. Okay. There, yeah. there was this big gap between that and Luna showing up. Well before I was playing, but Josh, you were playing at that point, right? Or you started in Genesis Cycle, right? 
Oh, yeah, I started about halfway through Genesis. Yeah, yeah, really yeah. near the start. Then when did you yeah. start? Mumbad cycle, basically. Oh, okay, <laughs> fair enough. And you stuck with it. I mean, I I was just happy to be there for the first while. I think I, I was actually at the regional where IG fifty four debuted, and I had no idea. I was nowhere near those tables. <laughs> It was not at all a thing that mattered in my life whatsoever. And I found out, you know, I, I looked at Netrunner DB on the next Monday and I was like, huh, someone played a deck like that there? Glad I didn't face it. <laughs> yeah, that's probably fair enough, isn't it? I mean, I, I played Magic like briefly just with friends. And I think that was just the sort of the nice fun game where you both get creatures and throw them at each yeah. other until someone wins. And then suddenly you discover that actually there are decks that win on turn two and all of this yeah. stuff. It's probably a bit like that, isn't it? What originally got you into playing Tournament Netrunner? just quite competitive i suppose i just like to try and better myself just continue i started off playing on well it was octagon at the time and just got interested in it and started looking at the forums and seeing oh you know here are the good players i want to sort of put a bounty on their heads and see if i can beat them and eventually that led itself to playing in the stimhack leagues so mm. that was my first kind of tournament experience of a tournament as such and then i made the cut of one of those but didn't win it and then afterwards i made the cut and did win it that was what sort of gave nice. me the, the taste for that but then i played my first real life tournament 2017 euros 2017 that's what it was mm -hmm. so laurie polter who probably a name that some people have heard of but doesn't play now sort of eventually nagged and nagged and nagged and got me to buy the cards eventually and said you know we're playing in here here's where most of us are staying you know come along and i just thought why not mm -hmm. So that was my first real life tournament. Don't regret it at all, obviously. Glad that Laurie kept on me. Back up just a second. I imagine that among our audience, there are many people who don't know what a Stimhack League is. So that was uh, an online format. You just sign up for the league and you can play games whenever you like. So there's no set limit or, or anything like that. You just find someone else who is in the league. And when you make a game, you just label it as Stimhack League game. Normally, you would play both sides. You would play both Corp and Runner, especially as Corps were substantially ahead in those times. Mm -hmm. So it would be a bit of a cheap trick to only play Corp and then pretend you had to go. But yeah, you would play both sides and then just report the result in the league and um, you amass points i think it used an elo system and at the very end of that the top four would play in a well like a round robin top four and one person would win it i think there were probably penalties introduced for not playing games for a large period of time so you couldn't just get to the top of the league and then just stop playing there's a certain decay on your rating but i played in the second one of those that existed and i think i won maybe the third one if i remember right i played in a few others as well it was nice, you know, that the league games felt more important. They felt noticeably different mm -hmm. to just going on to Octagon and just playing a random game. Yeah. You're bringing me way back. You're bringing me way, yeah. way back. I, I got to say shout outs to the Stimhack League and shout outs to Octagon. For those of you who aren't old, old heads, Octagon, think, I don't want to say shittier JNet because it was <laughs> really good for its time, but a less advanced version of JNet that you had to get some illicit files for. It was uh, it was pretty sweet, though, back in the day. Yeah, they were all kinds good of... Good sound effects, uh, though. Yeah, good sound oh, effects. Yeah. That was the big upside, wasn't it? The side yeah. game sound effect. Like, the, the resing ice all had their different little noises, and you had to know all kinds of shortcuts, though, didn't you? Like, 
Oh yeah, you absolutely did. Just loads of it. Yeah. The one thing I wish they would take from Octagon that's not in JNet right now. So they have the run arrow that shows you what server you're running on, but Octagon had a like target and access arrow that showed what card the runner was currently accessing. Oh, that's yeah, pretty cool. Yeah. It had quite an intimidating message when you played against Argus as well, didn't it? When you stole an agenda. I can't oh, remember I don't the remember exact wording. One. Something like, you cannot escape Argus security, something like that. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> you must take two meat damage or attack, choose immediately. You know, something like that. I'm probably... <laughs> I remember grinding loads of games against like a few people who like Pinsel, for example, was a, a very common opponent. Like one of the best players who was still around on Octagon at the time played loads of games with Pinsel. Yeah, my main exposure to Octagon is I believe there were a few tournaments held on Octagon that I saw footage of. Again, it was not really a thing by the time I joined the game. So this is this is an interesting slice of history that I think I missed to a certain extent. Yeah, there's a lot of footage, isn't there, on YouTube? Just uh, loads of loads of people showing their games. I mean, there was that channel uh, run by a guy called Kiv, if you want to see how Octagon worked. Kiv invented a deck that I think Pants would absolutely hate. Spy Camera Haley with Panchatantra. Oh, oh no. yes, I played against that a bunch of times. Yeah, he had a, he had a, a fondness. He had a fondness for these little cheeky little decks. It would basically clicklessly in one turn install six spy cameras and three. Oh, it, it had the it had that one chips. hardware. Was it replicator, replicator or something? Yeah, replicator. Yeah. It had yep. that. and then it also had the bazaar, which allowed you when you installed a piece of hardware, you could install another copy from your hand clicklessly. Oh god, that's just absolutely grim. Oops, I dropped my seventeen spy cameras into play. It was a fantastic deck. It was primo shaper bullshit, though. <laughs> it is extremely good that those cards don't exist anymore, given, like, the Geist stuff that... Yeah, uh... yeah. Oh, yeah, Stimhack also did a bunch of tournaments on Octagon. Not to the extent that Nisei does now, with, like, Worlds and Continentals and Intercontinentals and stuff, but I remember that there was a Stimhack Invitational where this one year they did an Invitational tournament on Octagon... If you had won regionals or above that year, allowed to enter, and yeah. that was that was pretty cool. I think Dan actually did the commentary for that. Dan Darshanio. Yeah, Dan did a lot of commentary for for early game for games on Octo. Yeah, I remember the tournament. I didn't play in it because I hadn't won anything at the time, but I remember watching some of it. On this note, so on this note of playing, honestly, like absolute top level tournament runner for a long time, which is the thing that you've done. Out of all that experience, what do you think is the most broken deck you've ever played? I don't tend to play, I don't know how to describe, I don't tend to play um, very broken decks that do magic tricks, I guess. I tend to play fairly mm -hmm. straightforward. I guess um, Mitty is probably the most <laughs> broken ID that I've ever, I mean, I played that for as long as it was possible. And I'd been playing Palana before, so it was pretty easy just to port all the best cards into Mitty, just laugh at how absolutely ridiculous it was. But that's probably the most powerful deck that I've played. It it, it brought in ridiculous win weights on, on Jaina, you know, sort of 90% plus type thing that you don't, you never get over it. <laughs> Nothing that I'm doing now comes close to that over a period of time. But yeah, Mitty was the most broken thing I can think of. I'm trying to think of a runner. I played Noise, but Noise, like this was when Noise was really bad. This was when Anarchs mm. were, were bad and didn't have any draw, like even pre-inject days, you know, where you just, you splashed Diesel or you played Wildside mm. and had three clicks or, you know, you just didn't have anything really. You just 
try and draw everything in the right order. Yeah, I don't know what runner I would say. It's probably going to just be some boring answer like uh, 419 when crims were really good with crowdfunding <laughs> or something like that. I mean, 419 when crowdfunding is around, that's pretty broken. <laughs> <laughs> it was quite good. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a bit ridiculous. Nexus 419 when crowdfunding Ooh. was out was kind of similar Ooh, for gross. similar reasons. Yeah, very gross. For what it's worth, when it comes to Mati, Spags was stomping those all day on the day in 2018 Worlds. I did take it to, to Mopus. That was my corp deck. And I think it went, mm-hmm. you know, 11 1 or something. And my runner was like 5 5 Ooh. or something. It was a very big difference. Wow. I believe it. Like, MC is just, it's such an incredibly strong ability. It beats Polana in economic power alone, just installing clicklessly without paying costs. And then you yeah. factor in that it messes with the runner's maths. You can bring yeah. in border controls. And well, I guess now you can abuse things like skunk works, which wasn't a thing before. And one of the cards that was theoretically, people were like, oh, this is so strong against MT, spearfishing. You're just like, okay, so you're forced, you're compelled to bypass, right? I'll drop an Anansi down. <laughs> we do have Anansi in faction, yes. Yeah. <laughs> the best card was Employee Strike, I guess, for Mitty. Yeah. Oh, it single-handedly forced so much of the meta to be on Employee Strike, I think. Um, pretty much, yeah. I mean, Mopus, I think everyone was doing it, or all the best decks were doing it. But then something happened later that meant people weren't playing Strike. It was some MWL change, wasn't it? I can't mm-hmm. remember what. Crowdfunding was restricted oh, and yeah, Strike. Yeah. So you just had to play crowdfunding and just allow Mitty to be even more broken. So on the flip side here, so the, those are some of the most broken decks you've played. This is maybe a, a spicy pick here, depending on the exact deck in question, but what do you think is the worst deck that you've played and done very well with? Oh, wow. And done well with. Yeah. I certainly had like bad decks that just didn't go anywhere, but a deck that I've done well with. How about maybe Blue Sun? I mean, I, I did quite well with Blue Sun in Worlds 2019. This was like, well, it was doing a lot of things. It had some big ice. It was doing punitive. It had Marcus Batty with a lot of rig shooty stuff. Mm. And uh, it was quite impressive against Criminal because they didn't have much answer to the rig shooting and they didn't like running through Chiashis and things. But it, it was quite inappropriate to the meta because Apoch Anarch was everywhere and they don't die to punitive easily because they've got I've had worse and they don't care about your rig shooting at all. So it was probably a subpar deck. Um, I think Kenny said on his podcast or maybe on some prediction thing that I was playing a garbage deck in there. Um, but <laughs> Classic, I, you know, I, I made the cut and, and did reasonably well, but I don't think the corp was especially good. Probably just got the right matchups and things like that. Played it in a few other tournaments that season, but it was probably not a particularly good deck, if I'm being honest. I don't think I'm a very good deck builder in general. Prefer to hone my play in the game and sort of during the tournament, and I'm usually just settle for playing something I think is pretty reasonable rather than getting too worried about every slot being the absolutely perfect, which I I don't think is possible Mm. anyway. Certainly not when you're playing 60 and 70 card decks. (laughs) (laughs) Have to optimize, you know, need that. 60th card versus that 61st card yeah it's a very different (laughs) process isn't it like before it's what do i cut for this and now it's just i want this i'll just put it in the deck i suppose (laughs) forget about cutting anything all right well pants we can't spend all day on the bakery don't we have world's decks to discuss you're right this is good segue we just broached that topic i was actually thinking we could talk about pd first 
that deck has a really notable Bioroid in it, right? Like, should we do a Bioroid card for this segment? Yeah, I, I suppose we could do Enforcer 1.0. What? No, 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 no. We're talking about a world winning deck here, Josh. We can't have Enforcer 1.0. Let's do a good Bioroid. This week on Ronald 5. The reason that I mentioned that Bioroid in particular is because there is actually a fun story involved in this PD deck. We're going to get to the full deck, but I'd like to start by discussing Ansel 1.0. Notably, the person who designed Ansel 1.0 and who appears in the art of that card is, in fact, our guest on this episode of the Slumscast. Patrick, what originally made you decide to make a Bioroid Ice for your champ card? This was ages ago, so I think at the time HB was just complete garbage, if I remember. Can't I relate. Was, <laughs> <laughs> HB sucks, pass it on. I think I was trying, I was thinking, well, I think at this point, all their bioroids are kind of rubbish and all their best ice are not bioroids. Yeah. They don't have any good sentries apart from Architect. And I just thought, let's give them a leg up. I can't remember exactly what this time period was. Maybe it was 2018 or, or something. Basically, they weren't that good. So I thought, let's actually give them an ice that's not embarrassing. A Sentry, a sentry. I decided sentry quite early on because I thought they don't have any. By this time, things like Ichi and uh, mm -hmm. Ichi 2 and Sherlock and all of that stuff was just not very good. Let's give them a good sentry bioroid that they actually want to put in their decks. Yeah, that's a really good point of comparison because as you point out, Architect, obviously, fantastic ice. It was kind of everywhere. He was even getting splashed into other factions out of HB, but Architects is not actually a Bioroid. It kind of ignores one of the big identities that Purple Ice often have. I think they didn't really have any Bioroids they wanted to play at this point anyway, when I conceived it. So I just thought, let's let's put the Bioroid back in Haas Bioroid and give them something. So that was the idea. And then obviously by the time it came out, HB was actually amazing and didn't need any sort of help. <laughs> eh, it happens sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Although HB is very strong right now, sort of in a similar position where a lot of the most played ice in HB was not of the Bioride type, you know? People aren't really playing Eli 1.0 right now. They're on Hagen, they're on Gatekeeper, they're on Drafter. None of those are actually Bioroids. No, it's still kind of the same, isn't it? I mean, I guess, yeah, Fairchild 3 was the only one that, that really was mm -hmm. getting played, and now that's gone. So, yeah, still a, a kind of similar situation. But it's nice that they have they have one Bioroid, or well, two Bioroids, arguably, that they want to put in their deck. Fairchild 3 that... always felt like a little bit of a fake Bioroid to me because, you know, the entire idea of Bioroids, like if I run, you know, second click or something, I'm not completely punished because at least I can click through the worst subroutines. Fairchild 3 is like, no, like you needed to plan your entire turn around me. In a way that Ansel doesn't force you to do all the time. Sometimes the subs are different enough that you, you may be able to let one of them or even two of them fire, depending on mm. what you're doing. I think that there is a fair comparison, though, to another card. It's just that HP is kind of spoiled for choice on the barrier ice. But Bran 1.0 is actually a very good card. It's There's enough barriers, especially like Hagen. Yeah, why would I play this? But it's interesting that there aren't enough sentries within HP that Ansel is still very playable, very good card. You look at it and you're mm -hmm. like, I'm very happy to put this in my deck. Oh, yeah. 
I didn't want it to be an automatic three off. And I think it succeeded in that regard as well. It's just a little bit too expensive, a bit too awkward to just jam three of them in every deck. We do have Drafter that fulfills that role quite nicely. I do think that you're correct, but it is seeing top level play. And was this a card you expected to see top level play when you designed it? I hoped it would. It did see a quite late nerf, at which point I wasn't mm-hmm. sure if it would see very much play. And at the time, the HB decks were, well, it was mostly Acer, and I wasn't sure mm-hmm. that those archetypes yeah. wanted to play a, a six-cost ice in their deck at all. So I was on the fence. I wasn't sure whether it would see much play at all. I'm glad that it has. I think it's about equivalent to Brand, and I think depending on the meta, one or the other one might be better. I think Ansel is better right now. If you played in a meta where Smoke was the dominant runner, you might find Ansel to be extremely useless because I had the pleasure of testing against Rust Rider a week before Worlds, so or rather he just threw a Smoke deck at me. And about halfway through the game, I thought, yeah, this this is completely useless, isn't it? It's not actually... <laughs> he's just walking through my two Ansel remote like it's absolutely nothing and Bran would be a lot better. So I think in a vacuum, they're about the same, but Ansel is better right now. Ouch. Also, Worlds winning Smoke. One of the best world's memes, world's winning smoke every year. <laughs> Paragon smoke. Uh, Paragon hey, smoke. I played oh, yeah. Paragon smoke in a tournament. In fact, when you did that thing earlier saying, what's the worst deck you've played in a tournament, I was going to wheel that out. And then you said, Ooh. oh, but you have to have done well as well. So I was like, oh, I can't. I wish I hadn't put that stipulation because, you know, it's a time-honored tradition on the Slums cast to dunk on Paragon smoke, a deck that I have oh. gotten destroyed by in the past. <laughs> ah, no, I was all ready to bring that out then. It wasn't a very good deck. And it, it was the only, so uh, Chris Dyer, I don't know if you know, has only played one uh, impromptu game on JNet ever. And I was the fortunate wow. person who happened to do that. And it was Paragon Smoke. Just went on JNet one day, brought Paragon Smoke, found myself up against Dyer for some reason, <laughs> and just got completely destroyed by CTM in about five seconds. Uh, you hate to see it. <laughs> no, it's uh, Smoke. I love to see it. Yeah. Okay, fair. <laughs> Let's talk about Ansel in this specific PD deck. What role was it playing in this PD deck? So it's pretty much just your bigger, chunkier piece of ice that uh, allows you to resist a bit more in the late game, should it come to that. It kind of finishes off a, a gear check remote nicely when you, you go sort of gatekeeper plus border or gatekeeper Hagen, and then perhaps you've scored four points or five points, but you just need that extra edge that, that makes the remote uh, completely obnoxious. That's where that's where the Ansel can do very nicely. Plays very, very well with anything that ends the run, like void or border, anything that's going to make them run twice. You know, you can run through it once with clicks, but running through it twice is very painful, very painful for criminals as well that are using bug halter nothing really wants to run through it twice apart from smoke as discussed that's the idea behind it but uh, you don't want three of them it's uh, just a little bit too bad in your opening hands so mm-hmm. i found that two bigger ice was about the right thing for that deck previously one brand one ansel and now two ansel very happy with it, it seemed to work well Yeah, I can remember distinctly from some of the games that we spectated in the top 16, just there were points where we were speculating, you know, what's the ice on the remote? What's the ice that just went on the remote? If it's Ansel, this game is over. It did seem to show up a lot, didn't it, in those games for some reason? I think double Ansel against against Vercomis. Yeah, it it did get an unusual amount of screen time, which was nice, I suppose. Okay, let's zoom out a little bit farther then. We've talked a fair amount about Ansel. We've talked a fair amount about the role that Ansel played in the PD deck, but I guess let's talk about the PD deck in general. How did this PD deck work? I'm hoping that most people listening to this episode have watched some of Worlds, have ideally watched some of the games that you played and possibly the grand finals, but 
How does this PD deck work at a high level? Yeah, so I suppose essentially it's a rush deck. You just want to go fast. You score out agendas from an unadvanced state with seamless launch. If you possibly can, you use the ability to get seamless launch and put it back in hand. And the idea is to just put relentless pressure on the runner. Every turn, as far as possible, you want to install a new thing in the remote and say to them, is this the next agenda or is it just some nonsense that I'm trying to get you to chase after? That's the basic idea of it. You've got Tranquility Grid, which rewards you for putting something new in the remote. But yeah, pressure, pressure on the runner, I think, is is the key. You need to make them worry about what you've put in there near enough every turn so they don't have time to just set up a comfortable drip economy or click liberated accounts a lot. That's that's the idea. You're assisted by some very good ice in HB. You've got Gatekeeper, sort of the quintessential rush ice. You've got good cheap ice like Drafter. You've got Magnet, which uh, keeps out Botulus from, from getting past it. That's the idea. You rush. And if you can't rush to seven points, you have some late game to fall back on. You have some end run effects like border control. You have anoetic void. You have Ansel as discussed. It hopefully allows you to squeak out the last agenda. So yeah, fundamentally, you're trying to go fast. You're, you're not hanging around with this deck. That's the plan. And a fun card here with what you're pointing out, putting relentless pressure on need to check the remote. Three advanced assembly lines here. Yeah, it's an economy card in the first instance, but you can always put it in the remote. If they do chase after it, you still get a little bit of money from it. It's an extra remote bluff, basically, and uh, it has a few skateboard tricks. You can trigger it off turn in order to get more value off Tranquility Grid. You can occasionally troll uh, an apocalypse player if they run two of your centrals and then you can say wait i'm going to install you know a border control or a chrysium grid something like that it has a few tricks like that please so, hold corp is active yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah a lot of people won't respect it if they're not used to playing against the card but yeah Love that. It, it's, it's a nice fun little card i like it it's basically because of this deck's we saw many times throughout the weekend that, you know, you would actually advance agendas to score them, but the prototypical scoring pattern for this deck is you just throw it in the remote and you have a seamless, so you don't ever have to advance it. In that regard, advanced assembly lines is extremely similar to NGO. It is an economy card that you can trigger that the runner has to run that genuinely looks like an agenda. Yeah, that's right. That Yeah, that's part of why you put it in the deck. It, it does fulfill that function. And it's part of why NGO is, you know, a very good card, but is not in the deck because you, you don't need the ability to advance it so much. You can just use anything in the remote. So yeah, that's a good comparison. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. I have tried NGO in there as well. And it's it's kind of, you know, it's a close one. You could consider yeah. putting one NGO in the deck just to make mm. them on the last turns of the final to make him wonder whether it really is the food or just the NGO front, but didn't make the final cut of the deck. It seems to be a pretty tuned 44. You already have the 44 deck slots in HB problem where you have probably more cards than you can fit into the deck that you want to fit into the deck. And especially if advanced assembly lines always does stuff and NGO usually does stuff. I guess that's a problem. It's an archetype that's been around a while, isn't it? So it's had a while yeah. to be sort of tuned and, and tried out for different metas. So I think it's in a pretty, it's in a pretty tuned place at the moment, but uh, as every meta changes, you try different things, you take out Chrysium grids or you put them back in or you just mm -hmm. try and react to whatever's out there. I guess on that note, as you point out, this deck is one that has been around at high-profile events for pretty much this entire tournament season, I would say, since System Update and System Gateway came out. Kind of PD's been a thing since then, PD yeah. Rush in particular. And you've played it at several high-level events this season. What about the archetype really appeals to you that much? 
I just like scoring agendas. I like uh, HB. I've always liked HB. I mean, I did something similar in I think the first tournament I played in Gateway Meta, which was just like a fair sports deck pretty much. And it was fine. It did quite well. But I see this as just a similar thing that just does it better because you don't have to tip your hand. You don't have to advance. You just have so much tempo every time you score an agenda. You can just, you can threaten so much so early on, basically just the first install with an ice on top of it. That is immediately a potential agenda. Contrary to perhaps what some UK players think or what some people think, I don't actually like very, very long games. I uh, I quite <laughs> like, I like rushy archetypes that have a bit of depth, a bit of late game if they have to. So yeah, it just immediately appealed to me. Yeah, it works for me. It works a treat. On that note of the Chrisium here, the Spin Doctor there, was there anything unique or different about this specific PD decks or any tweaks that you made for Worlds? I went to one Chrysium Grid and two Spin Doctor rather than the other way around. And that was just because Apocalypse seemed to be much less of a presence than before. But I suppose I kept the Chrysium in just as a, just in case I ran into it. And I think a few people were playing it even in the cut. So could have been relevant in the event. The Chrysium didn't do that much. I think it was relevant in two games, but it was never a crucial part of it. Apocalypse in this meta could have been quite a clever curveball pick. And I think a lot of people took away most of their tech for Apocalypse. Spin Doctor, I'm told, is quite a good card. I feel like a lot of people told me to add more Spin Doctors to my deck or lamented the fact that I was only playing one of them before. And honestly, I wasn't happy about don't know if I changed much else. Just the two Ansels. So I went up to two Ansels and I think that was a pretty much all I changed. I did try Arc Lockdown, yeah. which is quite fun against Max. Locked them out. I had some fun playtesting games. Played a few against Laura where I killed all the sentry breakers oh. and then fired about a thousand drafters over the course of the game and still oh almost didn't win. But uh, <laughs> I don't know. It seemed a bit too trolley in the end, a bit too, I don't know. I went back to CVS. That's the problem with the lockdown. If it's on the wrong breaker, it can actually not be a lockdown. Or if you play against anything that isn't max, you suddenly start wondering yeah. why you put this in. Unless they happen to bend the paperclip, I guess that's the best case scenario. Lockdowns can also be notoriously difficult to time correctly. Yeah. Because you have to have like a free click on a turn. And yeah. I suppose with this deck, it's realistic because you're recurring the seamless. But even then, the, the, the timing on those is awkward can actually make you play badly sometimes if you mm. see two of one breaker go in the bin and they start running at you you often become tempted not to res your code gates just in the hope that the third one goes in the bin and you might be yeah. able to arc lock down it so you just end up giving them a bunch of free runs and then in the end you give up and you res the ice anyway so i don't know it's wow historic slums mistake you meant arc lockdown i thought you meant lockdowns <laughs> oh <laughs> the card type this whole time but yes still even still timing is difficult on our lockdown as well so the point still stands yeah no you made a very you made a very good point i, I, I did not realize that you made that mistake at all no it's completely yeah. legit uh, completely legit point maybe timing is just always out. important yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah maybe that's the takeaway I guess there's another champ card that's in this deck that I briefly wanted to discuss, which is Border Control, champ card made by Chris Dyer. Some of the recent rules changes and windows not being in certain places, I guess conventional wisdom might say Border Control got a nerf in PD specifically where it no longer works with Mangarm Skunk Works. Notably, your deck is on two Border Controls and one Anedic Void. What was behind that split? 
I don't think I ever played under a rule set that allowed you to trigger it after skunk mm. works. Although if that was allowed, that does sound very, very disgusting. I went down to one void, you know, with regret at some point, just so that I could fit the chrysiums in. And so I could mm. play global food because earlier versions were playing Ikawa. That's the only reason. It's not a thing I'm happy about doing. I would certainly rather have two of them because skunk void is an amazing combination. Obviously, like border control is great to end runs on the remote where there, even if you're not getting the skunk works value, were there other reasons that border control was in there? I think I just tend to put border control in everything or I need a good reason mm -hmm. before I don't put it. I think it's just so powerful. I guess just the similar to before, like making them run through Ansel twice is horrible. Making them oh. run through Gatekeeper twice the turn you've resed it. Yeah, I just see it as an auto include, I suppose. My yeah. deck building philosophy, put border control in, in everything if you can. The AAL skateboard trick, as you pointed out, for Apocalypse and and that. Mm -hmm. And I guess it's also, we saw it being relevant also in the top cut with, there were games where the out is I'm going to access a bunch of cards, use a turning wheel, and pray that I see two agendas. And Border Control makes that extremely awkward. Yeah, that was against John in the, the semis, wasn't yeah. it? So in fact, he did get his big dig and probably deserved to win. I think he had about 75% to win or something. But once that had happened, I think he didn't have a chance to get back into it just because yeah. of having two border controls. I think perhaps any other ice could have sneaked in there, perhaps overclocked and, and got a few more accesses. But border control was a, a good hard stop to that. Yeah, and I guess compared to Void, one thing that is really nice about border control is they do actually have to break the ice. It does actually end the run. Yeah, it's it's a yeah. gear check, yeah. We're delving into slightly spicy territory here. PD, as just about every strong deck seems to be, the PD has been slightly controversial over the season. Many people saying, PD's too strong, PD's broken. Is PD broken? No, I don't think it is. I think at the start of Gateway, there were probably more complaints about it. And I think I can understand where those came from. I think it was relatively new. People didn't know how to play against it and Violet Level existed. So it was very, very powerful and it feels very easy to play. I think it, it's easier to play as it and win crushingly than it is to try and play against it. But I think it's been reined in. I think pretty even matchup against Steve or Krim in general. Like I don't think it's up against those at all. Pretty even against Big Max, probably APOC, Anarch is actually slightly up on it unless it's playing both Chrysiums. So I think when you break down the matchups, it's not particularly broken. I think it's just a deck in the meta. And I think it's good that it exists. I think it sets a certain level of speed that you have to be able to deal with. And I think without it, you'd probably see even more big drip runners just playing three Rosekis, three pad taps, and just sitting back, and which a lot of runners are doing anyway, right? Whether it's out of Max or Sunny or Krim of some sort. So no, I think it's a good thing. I don't think it's broken. I have to agree. And I think that it fills a similar role. I'm going to go way, way back in time to show you how much of an old head I am. I had this discussion with Lucas, the original lead designer of the game. He used to show up to FFG quite a bit, talking about back in the day during the rise of RP decks, how the NEH decks felt a little bit unfair. These two decks had completely opposite core strategies. RP decks would use Jackson to hide agendas until they had their remote set up with Nisei's, and then they would start scoring out. So they were a very long game deck. And the NEH decks were trying to just score the Astros as soon as possible, and if possible, out of deck using Fast Track and Sansan. San. This was before MWL. This is before ban lists. 
a lot of us local players were talking to him and talking about ban lists and talking about things like banning Fast Track or banning Sansan or banning Astro. Some of these were bad ideas. Some of these were good ideas. They never came the to Fast Track. Anyways, is very it doesn't matter. Yeah, well, Fast Track, if you ban it, then you can't score your Astros out of deck. The key takeaway from the discussion that we had with him was he was like, no, both types of deck need to exist. Here's why. If a fast deck doesn't exist, then all the runner's going to do is worry about late game, and they're going to womp these RP decks. If the slow deck doesn't exist, then all they're going to do as runner is they're going to focus on the early game, and they are going to womp these NBN decks. What you need the runner to do, have them stretch out their tech to all phases of the game and balance the factors of what's good against this fast deck, what's good against this slow deck, and not have them be able to focus their core strategy on defeating one type of core deck. For a healthy Netrunner game, not just metagame, but just the game as overall, you need multiple corp decks pulling the runners in different directions to make this game any good. And so I do think that you're correct in saying that like, hey, PD is a deck that exists and it is really fast. And, you know, sometimes it can win really fast with you going, well, what could I do? But I think that Netrunner at its core, I, I tend to agree with Lucas saying that all those years ago, you need something like that. It can be too fast sometimes and we do need to curb it. Banning VLC, I think, was a good idea. Taking some of the speed out of it is good, but... Something fast has to exist, and I think something late game definitely has to exist. I'm, I've always thought that. Honestly, if it's my choice, I'd rather that the fast deck be PD than Audacity throw all of your cards in the trash sports. As fun as that deck is to play and as interesting as it is for it to be as good as it is, I enjoy games against PD a lot more than games against sports. I think the core way you beat PD, one of its predators is just good crim play. Because it's not a Glacier deck, not really. Like, it's got that annoying remote, but there's this Krim counterplay to it that's really interesting. But e even not being Krim, like, good max play, there's no secret to how you win against the deck. It's it's just getting in and getting the accesses where you can to bleed out at agendas, really. And that's just good play. You should check HQ every once in a while. You shouldn't laser focus on R&D. You should target use your bypass and your turning wheel and all these tricks and everything unless pd gets the nuts as far as an opening hand it feels like the games are fair so to speak yeah it's it's just classic netrunner for me so yeah i think it's usually fair good comparison to neh i mean i wasn't playing that competitively at the time but i was familiar with the two opposite ends you know the rp and fast robiotics archetypes and i think it is good to pull runners in separate directions so this is similar i think Fastro biotics was probably a bit more controversial than pd but a similar concept for similar reasons though the fast robiotics deck had astro and then the PD deck has these extremely tempo forward agendas. I can understand why people think that the deck is broken because the agendas do extremely strong things and in many ways are assets rather than hindrances. But I don't think that's bad. Just because you are a corp deck and have to include agendas in your deck doesn't mean that you have to hate every second of it. No, I agree. I think uh, it's moved a bit more towards that, hasn't it, now where your agendas do something good for you. I think in the old days, it was more about 
I hate all my agendas. I hate to see them. <laughs> I try and make them as expensive as I can to steal, you know, by playing yeah, Future yeah. Perfect and APD. You know, I score them yeah. because I have to and I don't enjoy yeah. it. Now it's, yeah, it, it rewards you for scoring. It says to you, right, this is what you're trying to do as the corp. So it's a different design take. I guess both yeah. of them are, are valid. I'm not shocked to hear that take coming from someone who was on Polana for so long because one of the strongest <laughs> agendas that was one that you actually liked to score was that Nisei Mark II. The others were all pretty much garbage, though. You had yeah. like <laughs> three Obercata, Future Perfect. You had Philotic, which occasionally pinged them for something. Yeah. Most of them were just a chore to score. Global Food, similarly, I guess. But it's moved a lot more towards tempo positive agenda suites. I mean, even the Glacial, Asmari, and the Acme decks, your scores are still doing something good for mm -hmm. you. People have different opinions on whether they think scoring should be a chore. I think there is a legitimate viewpoint that when you score, it should open up holes for the runner to attack you somewhere else. And the other viewpoint is that you should be rewarded for it. So people have different views on that. I guess people who don't like PD don't like you being rewarded for it. That's fair enough. It's a, it's a point of view. But I do think PD is a lot more manageable. The Violet Level ban was a very good idea. And I don't think it's really up on any Tier 1 runners, at least, apart from Hive Mind Max, which didn't see a lot of play. I think all of the other good runners have plenty of game against it. That all said, though, if there is a need to rein PD in, I don't honestly think that there is at this point. Maybe if it continues to be the top contender and there doesn't seem to be anything that can take it down consistently with good play, which I don't think is the case, but just roll with me here. If it is, I do think that you could take out one of those tempo forward agendas and there's still a straight up replacement in the card pool that could come in, which is corporate sales team. It's slower, still tempo forward, you don't really want to score it as much as you would want to score a sandbox, but deck still functions. I either of the tempo forward agendas could conceivably be banned to, to nerf it a little bit, and you could find some sort of replacement. You could play Vitruvius even, or you could play that one, what's it called? Remote Enforcement. <laughs> Probably not that good, but might be a bit funny. You could put tear in your deck and stuff. <laughs> I don't. I don't know if I would do that. I like yeah. I said. I would. I would probably stick with corporate sales. Team. Yeah, probably. <laughs> it'd, be, it'd, it'd be fun to go grab and resetier though. <laughs> it would be a lot of fun. Either sales team or Vitruvius. I think you could play Vitruvius. I think someone even yeah. played it against me in the tournament. Actually, I think uh, a PD deck beat me that was playing Vitruvius. I can't remember who it was. On this note, though, we're talking about kind of good, honest netrunner, exact amounts of credits, a lot of plays in the top sixteen, and I'm, I'm focusing a lot on the top sixteen here, just because. Most of the games that I watched of yours were in that top 16. A lot of those games and a lot of those plays came down to incredibly tense, often credit-perfect moments. I can ask this in the slums way, which would be, how do you not horrifically fuck up while you're playing this deck? But maybe instead I'll ask, do you have any tips on how to pilot a PD deck like this, especially in those extremely tense moments? Do the math. Sounds odd, but a surprising number of people don't want to work out how much it costs the runner to get in. And that's important to know. You know, before you make the play, just work out whether you can afford to put this ice on the remote, put the agenda in there, and whether you can score it if you are forced to res the ice, which you often will be. You might recall in the final, I was unable to score it after resing the ice because I was one credit off. I went into mm -hmm. that with my eyes open. I thought, 
I could lead him down a certain line of play, uh, which was running the remote a lot, and that I might draw the seamless or I might draw something else good that would let me score. But yeah, pretty much you just just do the calculations first. And yeah, I'm not sure what else to, to suggest, really. Sometimes you're just lucky and it does turn out credit perfect. I think that's a fair piece of advice. I mean, in some contexts, do the math is a meme in the Netrunner community, but it is genuinely good advice when you're trying to play a game of Netrunner where oftentimes the math really matters. Yeah, I find it easier to do it on JNet. I don't think that'll yes. be the same for everybody. I remember when I, I played on JNet only for, you know, online for three years. And when I started playing in real life, I found it extremely hard to do the math. I found myself just ramming things in the remote and just hoping they didn't run it or hoping they did run it if it wasn't an agenda. I found myself not really adding things up very accurately. So possibly some people find that harder to do on JNet if they played more in real life, but it, it is important. I think that's a good thing to remind people of that difference between math in person versus on JNet as we move, hopefully, you know, I'm knocking on wood as I say this, towards having more in-person tournaments in the near future, especially for people who have only played online. Things are different in person. There's this whole element of having to actually manually do things that also takes up some of your brain space. Yeah, I found that really noticeable in my first tournament. I think I managed to mostly avoid mistakes, but it did take up a lot of the part of your brain that you're normally putting towards doing the math or just strategizing. You're, you're putting it all into that instead. It's so what you're saying is you didn't accidentally shuffle the wrong card type in with Gatekeeper. <laughs> we don't have to keep dunking on Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Speak for yourself. Yes, we do. Did you have a favorite game or a favorite specific play with this deck on the weekend? I enjoyed a lot of the games. I mean, I guess the final, just simply the final was, a, I think, an enjoyable game. It was a, a good yeah. game. I think my draw was probably a bit above average. I think his was a bit below average, but a lot of interesting back and forth. I think the thing with about three turns with the food just sat in the remote oh was, uh, it was quite interesting and probably as good as any. Some of the other games just came down to drawing the nuts and winning very quickly. I think a couple of those were on the stream. One of them was yeah. a seven-turn win, and that's just what the deck gives you, and that's nice when it happens. Like the others were just kind of rubbish draws where you have to slow down a bit, you know, understand that you're not going to win quickly. You just got to put ice up and, and play a slightly longer game. I think probably the game against Adam was a bit more like that. There wasn't, mm -hmm. you know, there wasn't the same forward tempo about it. I think yeah. that game is a credit to both of you because... That game was really fun to watch. There were plays that both of you were making going back and forth. The skill displayed on both sides was very, very neat and yeah. very, very interesting plays back and forth. There aren't any plays in particular that like really stick in my head other than that sparring match on the food for several turns in a row, which was lovely. But all in all, yeah, I'd have to agree that was a great game. Mm. He is a very good player, Jonas. And what I said when I came on was true. I, I have an extremely poor record against him just playing like random games. It, it just sticks out as one of those names that just always seem to beat me. That's another mm. person I played back in Octagon days, actually. I sort of played games against him for ages. And he just always seems to bring the sort of deck that gets the better of me. So uh, I was really not expecting to win two games. Well, you did. I, I guess, yeah. Maybe if I had to pick a specific play, I remember... You dragged someone through the remote just to see the advanced assembly lines. That, that's got to feel good. <laughs> this is always fun, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. On the topic of tension, we should probably talk about the world's experience itself. That's, that's a tournament thing. We have a segment with a sports flavor, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, I think we do. Fast break. 
The top sports word that has to stand out with your top 16 performance, or victory, rather, is endurance. Or maybe marathon. Marathon works, too. You fought your way up from the lower bracket, and I don't think you had much time to rest at all throughout the day. What tips do you have for new players playing an entire day of tournament Netrunner? This could be in Swiss or in cut. Whatever advice or tips you got. Just the obvious stuff like stay hydrated. Don't forget to eat. It's surprisingly easy to do that. And just enjoy it, I suppose. I mean, there's, you don't do that for any other reason other than enjoying it. So just immerse yourself in it. Keep talking to your friends between every round. That that was what really carried me through it. So I've been testing with the snare bears and there was a lot of good camaraderie, a lot of good fun. So just got to enjoy it. Were you talking about the actual games with them during those breaks or was this like time to get your mind off of the Netrunner itself? No, no, it was just Netrunner. I didn't get my mind off the Netrunner itself uh, at all. I think I had a walk at some point and that was nice, but about five minutes. I actually got to roll back and plus one your drink water and eat food comment because... Oh God, it's so important. Dude, every time I've made a cut or gone far in a tournament, I've always eaten a good breakfast prior to the tournament. Something that's not empty calories, protein and fruit and shit. And then I've stayed hydrated and then not touched a drop of beer until I was in the cut and then scrubbed out of the cut, you know? I mean, in the shoes that I was sitting in, the the commentator's table as well, staying hydrated is so important. (laughs) Talking that much, you, you lose a shocking amount of water just from talking. And the same is true while you're playing Netrunner because oftentimes you're communicating with your opponent saying, oh, I'm running here, I'm going to break this with paperclip, whatever it is. You lose a lot of water that way, and you need to replace that water. For sure. You will have a terrible day if you don't. Take it off on a tangent as well, and also say, if you're judging in-person events, it actually does apply to judges too. Even though Mm -hmm. between rounds and stuff, I was drinking beers and coffee, you get a little bit more leeway to do that. I was sweating a lot, and you still have to hydrate yourself, even if you're sitting back and doing something like judging. We should also spend some time to talk about the runner deck that you played at Worlds. There's a very interesting trend among a number of the max decks that did well this year. And this deck that you played is no exception. It plays into an age-old debate, one that's been honestly running since time immemorial, which brings me to our next segment. No. No. Bonk Akamatsu Jail. I, I guess that's fair. I didn't let you have Enforcer run point out. I guess, uh, you know, this is a debate, right? We have a debate-flavored segment. We can, uh, we can always do the beef zone. The beef zone. In the beef zone, as always, we ask a simple question, which would win in a fight? And in this case, we are asking the question, which would win in a fight? Playing 45 cards in a max deck or playing substantially more than 45 cards in a max deck? In terms of which one I can defend better, definitely the 45 would win. (laughs) Uh, When I talked about PD, I feel like I know what I'm talking about a little bit. Now, I'm I'm much more of a follower. Okay, it started off with Laura Osclet, Mm -hmm. who really wanted a shout-out from me, so that's great. I've done that. I can check that off on my little list, yeah. 
tested this a bit with her or she was playing this large max deck against me and at first I thought it was a bit of a joke and then I started losing games and it was kind of annoying and, yeah. and <laughs> that's uh, how it always goes right yeah 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 uh, the so, stupid meme deck and then yeah. it turns out it's actually great yeah you keep mooring <laughs> all the seamless launches and start taking it a bit more seriously yeah, I played it myself. It just felt good, I guess, straight away. And very rarely do I take up a deck and it just feels good to me straight away. Like most mm -hmm. of the time, I just decide it's a waste of time and go back to playing whatever I was before. But this kind of gelled straight away. It just, I don't know, it, it just defies logic, doesn't it? That this larger <laughs> deck, like it finds its breakers so much quicker than Steve was, even though there's mm -hmm. 60 cards. And even though the breakers are rubbish, I don't like using bad breakers. It just feels really powerful. And I tried a bunch of different things like i didn't just have phaneous informant i tried falsified and i tried mm -hmm. like other influence and it sounds weird but most of it just felt pretty similar play whatever you wanted in the deck and it would be pretty good what laura and sanjay have been telling us for years <laughs> is actually kind of true you just find 60 good anarch cards and you put them in max yeah, I feel like this point of view is going to get blasted pretty hard by at least one other podcast, isn't it? This has genuinely been a joke for many years in Netrunner, myself being one of the people who makes this joke. Oh God, my cat knocked a bunch of orange cards into my deck box, but it's okay. I want a store champ with it. Obviously, this deck isn't actually that, but I can forgive someone who is hearing about it for the first time thinking that that's the case. How does a 60 card max deck work? Why was it gelling with you and why was it winning these games? Maybe it was more just the max ability that was gelling with me, having never played yeah. max before and having not played orange since about 2014 when orange was completely different. I guess just the max ability was, was so gelling good, right? the most. It's so, so it's good. a free card. Well, I don't know why I wasn't doing this before. It's a free card. Like, what's Unconditionally a free card too. You don't have to play 4D chess to draw a card off a of lot. Yeah, other than gentlemen, gentlemen, on. it's three free cards. You're right. Yeah, it right. is. Your three secondary free hand is your heap. Yeah, that's how you find the breakers, isn't it? That, that's really how you. I mean, you have to make some sacrifices. You have to play yeah. bad breakers, but you do find them. I mean, paperclip's good. Paperclip's good. The yeah. other two are complete bullshit. <laughs> yeah, you just pay six or nine or twelve to break any piece of ice. That's all you have to do. No big deal. You know. MK could be efficient at certain levels of efficiency. Good at breaking drafter. Yeah, it's fine for drafter. <laughs> it's fine for roto turret if your opponents are playing yeah. roto turret. Everything else, forget about it. Just let it fire. Find alternative solutions to getting through the ice. Play botulus. Yeah. Play boomerang oh, or something. God. Yeah. Play hippo so you only ever have to break it once. I do have to correct the record real quick before we move on to the next couple of bonus kebabs. Jonas, the second place finisher on Watch Me Drip, Watch Me May May. Is that how you pronounce that card? Or May Me? Watch okay. Me Drip, Watch Me May Me. It's actually a 70 card deck, not a 60 card deck. Yeah, you should assume Jonas knows what he's talking about more than me. If it's 70, then sure. I guess there were certain things I didn't particularly feel the need to put in the deck, like mining accidents mm -hmm. and... I think he's is playing a lot more companions than mine. I feel like if I played more than one of the companions, I would just hopelessly forget to juggle all of the things you're meant to do and just end up trashing them way too quickly. Yeah, you should get him on here. He can talk about this a lot better than I can, to be honest. He's been on here before, hasn't he? Yeah, also discussing a world's deck. In that case, it was potatoes. And I oh. feel like uh, discussing Big Max is going to be a lot more fun. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, well, there's the genuine reason you might play a bigger deck. It might be better against potatoes. Did you think that there was a real grinder potatoes-esque deck in the meta that you had to worry about? didn't think there was a real one. I thought there was a chance. I mean, some people will probably bring it. Yeah, of course. You might face it. You know, you might face it early on, but I, I didn't think there was a tier one that was doing that. No, could try to play around that a bit. Like you could play DJ Fenris, which a lot of people did, and that allows yeah. you to get more cards against Grinder stuff like that. But no, I just pretty much ignored it, or you know, buried my head in the sand and just hoped it wouldn't happen. Did it take any adjustment to get used to Max? You said that you had not really played Max before. Does it play differently from what you're used to, other than just the steady drip of one into your hand, but three cards a turn? Yeah, it's completely different to Crim, which is what I've been playing for the last three years. It's just a totally different experience. So yeah, the playtesting games were very useful. One thing was that I seemed to get results with it quite quickly, and that doesn't usually happen when I play a new deck. That's part of what made me think, you know, this could be the one, then this could be a, a deck that I can actually take to a tournament. It was doing well from the start. But yeah, it definitely took a lot of time to, to get used to it, to get used to the fact that all of your runs cost about 15 credits to do. <laughs> and you really can't make that many off them unless you're going to kill the ice very true a bonus kebab here on the beef zone one thing that this deck is light on when i look at the list is traditional multi-access i'm looking at the list i see one turning wheel one stargate and then ma which is like if you squint at it it's kind of multi-access what were the deck's usual win conditions given the lack of oh i have the inevitable turning wheel end game or i have huge R&D digs with deep data mining or, or something along those lines. Yeah, I, I suppose a bit like the Crim I was playing before, it doesn't feel like you need that much multi-access. And I think this one's especially having more, which is definitely pseudo multi-access. I think I had two turning wheel in some versions, but I didn't feel like it was that important a part of it. I think some people were playing even less. I have a feeling Jonas didn't even have any turning wheels in his deck. So I think you Yeah, zero. Yeah, you can very much play quite a controlly type of game. You can outdrip them, you can kill their ice, you can kill things from their hand. And it often just feels like turning wheel is the icing on the cake. It just sort of cleans up at the end. Stargate there occasionally for a mad dash play where you win with Stargate mad dash or to apply quick pressure if, if the corp is really just ignoring centrals completely. Maybe installed Stargate only once, something like mm. that. It's, it's almost a potentially cuttable card. Yeah, I just don't think you need a lot of multi-access when you've got them more. But when I played 419, I was, you know, same again. I was only playing like one turning wheel and maybe a Docklands when sports was a thing. And that was about it. Yeah, I guess that just speaks to the inevitability of runner when you have the right tools and you have the right trip. It's a little crazy to look back at a year or two years ago. A question you would always ask is like, where's the multi-axis? You need multi-axis to win. And sure. it's very interesting to see that we have decks doing this well and winning the world championships that Ma's enough. You don't really need that much multi. It's really yeah. cool. I guess yeah, I mean, Ma is multi-axis basically. Kind of. It's I also know. disruption, right? Like that's one of the cool things about it hitting the seamlesses from hand and things like that. It does so much against almost every archetype, doesn't it? Against the combo-y stuff or stuff that wants to hold hard-hitting newses and things mm -hmm. like that. Just steadily knocks all that stuff out of hand, kind of doubles as multi-access over a long game. So I'm very, very happy that I kept more and didn't succumb to more value and just play Kiko, for example. Did you guys notice testing with Ma and like testing some of the top-tier decks that it was really important to get that disruption? 
Well, Laura is a, a big more advocate, so that's always what she was playing against me in the testing games. So yeah, being on the other side of it was really what convinced me to put it in my own deck, because it is just so irritating. You know, sometimes it just denies you the win that you're about to yeah. you're about to just win, yeah. and then you don't. I know in years past, especially like during the time of America CTM with CV and stuff, one of the ways that that beat the CV decks was just a constant recursion of Rashida and just going super fast. Do you find that with the top tier corp decks that their wins are based on basically the cards that they hold in hand and, and therefore mod looks better than it used to? Comes down most games, even against PD, actually. I think I was installing it in most games as my pressure tool you know because knocking if you get rid of all the seamlesses you take away a big part of their game which is that they can't never advance they can't just put things in the remote and force you to run them and against all the other stuff so i mean against a lot of nbn decks you're just taking away hard-hitting newses and things like that mm -hmm. you have to pick your moment to install it you yeah. can't just slam it down turn two and expect to live but yeah i think it was coming down in most games actually yeah, and one of the things that this deck is really good at, because you have so many cards and you have so many tools, you know, you have so many tools to pry open servers and get good value off of Maw where you don't have to pay much to get Maw hits. So you can reliably actually get almost everything from the hand in the long state of four or five turns, which is really cool. I love that about this deck. They slap an ice down on HQ, you hippo the ice. They throw down another ice, you find the rebirth. It's so many different ways to get into servers. It stretches the court thin is the idea. So another bonus kebab here, on the note of specific cards in the deck, how different this deck is from some of the other Big Max lists in the top 16. We talked about Jonas's 70 cards on things like Mining Accident. These are ostensibly the same archetype, but they're actually quite different decks. How did you settle on 60 cards specifically and this build specifically? It was smaller, really. It just kept yeah. getting bigger and bigger. Yeah, certain absences. To me, Mining Accident, I suppose, is a, a nice-to-have card. It didn't make the cut for me in the end. The Companions, like I say, which I think Jonas is playing all of them, or three of them at least, felt like I didn't have the skill really or or the experience to juggle having all of them or a lot of them installed to use them properly i observed certain playtesting games where it felt like the runner was having to do unnatural things in order to support keeping the companions you know like they were having to yeah. make runs that they didn't want to make in order to keep their trickster and things like that so i thought it would end up especially over a long tournament it would not help me it would hinder more than helping so i left that out i left out mining accidents i'm trying to remember i left out gash upon probably it that should just be in the deck that's probably just me being mm. bad i can't remember if there were any other notable exclusions that probably accounts for most of the difference i think the exact influence spends a little bit different political operative. He's also on a falsified versus the turning wheel, but that feels like just maybe not an artifact of the different size of the deck, just a different way that he wanted yeah. to spend the influence. Yeah, falsified is good. I, I do like falsified yeah. a lot as a card, so um, I could certainly see having falsified in there. From his list, the only companion he's not on is Fencer Fueno, which I think that, that makes sense. Must be think, marked on Fencer yeah, Fueno. Yeah, that's usually the weakest one, isn't it? We did, at one point over the weekend, though, one of the craziest things I've ever seen, we did see Fencer Fueno completely save someone's life ganked into an Anansi out of PD. Oh, because you can use yeah. it? Because it's after you've accessed Yes, because it's after, it. exactly. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> what a counter tech. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Excellent stuff. 
there was quite a bit of ganked going around, wasn't there? There was, there that, was yeah. That weird Ace, some of the Brits were on a Polana deck that had ganked and Seamless and Lacosta, I think. Absolutely wild decks that we saw at Worlds do extremely well. That factor we were talking about of having to stretch the runner in different directions. I mean, that's almost an orthogonal. You're used to dealing with fast decks. You're used to dealing with slow decks. Can you deal with weird decks? Can you deal with brainstorms? and <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. On the note of weird things, one last couple bonus kebabs here. The first one is, did you have a favorite max mill of the weekend? Oh, well, the boring sense is just whenever you put a breaker in there, right? I quite like some of my opponent's max mills. Very often, very, nice. very happy when I see good cards go in the bin. Political operatives from Jonas, or perhaps the DJ yeah. Fenris, you know, or perhaps when you see two early labor rights go in the bin, that's usually just a little bit exciting, I suppose. No, I didn't really have a, a favorite one of my own. I guess I should pay more attention to them. Sometimes they stare you right in the face. Sometimes it's like, oh, the last two sure gambles. I needed those. <laughs> usually, yeah, usually I look at the opponent's bin like every few turns and I just review like a few key cards, like, you know, where are all the overclocks? Where are the breakers? Yeah. Where are the, you know, stuff like that. Overclock, certainly not Stimhack, but a card that performed very well at World in those decks, yeah. it looked like. It's weird that Overclock did as well as it did because Overclock was derided as shitty Stimhack when it came out. And in some respects, it still kind of is. But if you look at it as Dirty Laundry's four through six, it becomes a lot better. But and if you're actually going to spend the money, it's gamble plus saving a quick on the run, which is nice. Yeah, so uh, it's more short gambles or more Dirty Laundry's one or, the, one or the other. My favorite Max Mills, at least the funniest Max Mills, are always card I want, card I want, card that does nothing for me. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> Those are always the ones where you're like, why do I play this fucking game? <laughs> <laughs> the last bonus kebab here then. Did you have a favorite play overall with the deck on the weekend? I guess overclocking that uh, remote against Jonas was pretty nice and picking up the food. But I mean, yeah. watching it back, I think all the commentary team were like, yeah, this is obviously an agenda. And I think I'd narrowed it down to either the third reconstruction contract or an agenda. And then mm -hmm. I thought, yeah, I should probably go after this. And then the overclock just popped into hand. I thought, oh, that's great. You know, let's get my breaker for free. There was quite a nice moment where opponent who was playing PD had one of these suspicious looking cards sat in the remote for a while that I was debating whether I should go after. And then I ran R&D, accessed a Rashida, and for some reason didn't trash it. Perhaps I was on no credits or perhaps I had Aeneas out or something. I didn't trash it. And then next turn was immediately to purge rather than installing the Rashida in the remote. So I guess the Rashida tipped me off that that had to be an agenda. And I went and picked it up and won the game. Speaking of winning tournaments... Mm -hmm. Speaking of tournament winning decks, mm -hmm. I think it's time for another segment. This segment is a little bit of a throwback. Ooh. And it's going to be. We must be fucking Nostradamus. Oh, man, it's been a while since we've had this segment. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, Pants, you got the winning decks right. And I think that level of correctness on this podcast cuts into our reputation. I just don't know Shit. if it can be forgiven. So while we talk about this, cut the feed. That's fair. I accept that. Any thoughts on the fact that you made the right call? I think that the take wasn't especially spicy. PD being good and Max being good were... I feel like it didn't take a Nostradamus to pick that, despite the name of the segment. So Patrick, when you were thinking about 
Worlds decks, did you think that Max and PD weren't too hot of a take for winners? It's not too risky of a take, is it? It's not a brave. It's like one of the options you could pick. Like Max, I think, especially. It just feels like Max was everywhere. It was you the know, most it, common runner deck. Yeah, yeah, you're not going out on too much of a limb if you pick Max, I think. I think something like Adam would be a, a nice spicy take yeah. that could just happen, you know. But Max is, is kind of a, a softball, an easy one. If I remember correctly, the three of us were between Max and Steve on the runner side, which I think were the most played and second most played runner IDs. And then... Sure. On Corp side, we all picked PD, which was the second most played behind CTM. I'd expect yeah. PD or CTM. I don't remember what I just, Corps existed. Gagarin, maybe? I did not expect that to actually be a competitive deck. I'm going to out that and be like, that surprised me and shocked me oh, yes, in a pleasant way. But Two distinct Gagarin decks, me. too. Yes. The that made the cut. <laughs> Overseer Matrix, New World Order, Gagarin. Yeah. And then we, we didn't actually get to see the Snare Bears Gagarin in action really in any games because the one game it was actually on stream. Patrick, you just completely took Jonas apart. But it looked like it was a deck that was able to score agendas very quickly with the reconstruction contracts. Yeah, yeah, it's a pretty yeah. fast deck. It usually sneaks out the first one or two on the board mm -hmm. while you're too scared to run and then closes with fast advance. Pretty decent in testing. I don't know. What really got me was Krim just seemed so good going into Worlds. It just seemed like it had all of the tools that it needed for all the decks that I thought were going to come. And we talked about this earlier, but good Krim play being core against PD. And I thought you had called it with Panic PD being the main thing <laughs> this Worlds. But no, there was a mix of corpse, like a huge mix. It was not lopsided like yeah. Worlds normally is. There wasn't like a consensus deck going into it. I thought that that was kind of an incredible takeaway. I guess I would have picked Max if Krim didn't look so hot to me, especially with the unbanning yeah. of Pad Tap. I mean, Pad Tap's one influence, though, I guess is the thing. Steve is good. Steve has a good ability, but I guess mm -hmm. there is just a big drop off from 419 to Steve. You also could just be Steve with Fenris, so... After testing Max and trying to go back to Steve, I just found I couldn't do it without drawing a card at the start of my turn. I just, like, <laughs> it really was like that. It was, it was crazy how slow it felt after that. Yeah, I think Steve is a, a decent sort of rounded runner. It doesn't have a lot of bad matchups, so you can certainly mm -hmm. take Steve to any tournament. All right, I lied. I have a defense here. These were not especially spicy takes, and I, I apologize for getting them correct, but didn't go out of my way to be contrary, picking these and then getting spicy picks. But I have a very clear rebuttal here. Would you like to introduce the next mini segment? So we have a bonus. We must be fucking Nostra Dumbass. We must be fucking Nostra Dumbass. The bonus, we must be fucking Nostradamus, the worst predictions that we've made on this cast in a while. I personally staked my entire credibility on calling Aeneas Informant the bad card of the week that's still bad and you shouldn't play it at Worlds. And you literally won Worlds with three Aeneas Informant in your deck. So <laughs> why was Aeneas Informant in your deck and can you please retroactively take it out? I'd love to. Um, yeah, how did that show up? Um, it was one of those that I just suggested as a joke. Like so many things seemed to come up as a joke initially. And then Laura kind of messaged me on Slack saying, oh, I'm really excited, but I haven't been able to get to my computer yet because I want to try Aeneas Informant in my Max. And we started trying it. And it was pretty good against, you know, CTM and Gagarin. 
I don't think it saw very much use uh, in the games that were streamed, but it was really good for me on day one. I played Prison Gagarin. Mm. I played, I think, two CTMs, and mm. it was really good against those. Synergizes with more. It synergizes with the slums. It yeah. can set up some ridiculous situations in the right matchup. I wanted to ask you, because prior to this, this is like a completely unplayed card, I would have thought, that hadn't seen any yeah. light of day. Was there anything that led you to calling it as a bad card? Like normally you'd pick something that was a bit more ubiquitous, maybe? I was thinking about it in Criminal. I was thinking about ah, it as people sure. in Criminal teching super hard against asset decks. Ah. And I was mostly saying Aeneas Informant because, yeah, it synergizes with Turtle. Just play Miss Bones. Just play more Miss Bones. Get more free money. You don't need Aeneas Informant. It's not the right way to go. And I still stand by that in Crim. I did not at all, despite the name of this podcast, I did not at all think about the interaction between Aeneas Informant and Salset Slums, which if you're in a meta with a bunch of CTM, that's hot. Because it's a bit of a nombo with Miss Bones, isn't it? Miss Bones yeah. is just better. But yeah, that makes sense. Especially Salset Slums also working with Mott. That's so sick. Yeah, That's amazing. I did not notice this interaction with this card. I can't remember if it's changed from years back or if there was I, a wrong call once Salsa and it's slums, been like that forever. Yeah, Salsa Slums has like changed rulings probably six times throughout the game's history. The turbo mopus and disruption that you get when all the pieces are on the table. You got a couple of NES, you got Mon, you got Slums. It's just like CTM looks at that and is like, I'm about to have a really bad... Miss Bones says installed. You can Miss Bones anything that's on the field, but you can't Miss Bones anything out of deck. Salset Slums just says accessing. You can Salset Slums something in the deck, too. Oh, you, you can Salset Slums Rashida. too? Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> Get paid for your single accesses. Sometimes you just wait, run wait, wait. again three times if, if it... Does Slums also take up that first... No, it does not take CTM? up the CTM trigger but it does avoid the CTM trace because you're not trashing. But if you then go trash something later in the turn, you do still trigger CTM and Ares. It's when Salset Slums officially became a thing other than trashing, when it became like a third option. Okay, so yeah, it pays the trash cost and you're not trashing, you're removing from game. It's yeah. not that it's replacing, it used to replace the trash. Which was a weird what ruling used to that happen. never made sense. In yeah, the first so it used to replace the trash that the trash still happened right. so it was still considered the first trash okay it's something completely different from trashing so it doesn't take up the trigger mm -hmm. okay exactly it's pretty pretty sick that that combination is not something i ever saw coming and it's really cool to see it winning oh god worlds. it avoids it avoids aries too it avoids aries it avoids yeah. aries it's sick yeah. right yeah it doesn't avoid mumbad virtual tour though and you can't use Salset Slums on MVT, right? No, no. You, I yeah. discovered this in round three or something. That like, hurts. Yeah. <laughs> accessing it and thinking, hmm, it's not giving me the trigger here. But yeah, you can't because you, you have to trash it if able. Yeah. So you can't slums it. That is super sick, though. CTM rushes out the turn one Aries against you and they're like, ha ha, I won yeah. this game. And you just drop your Salset Slums and your Aeneas Informants and your Maw and they just can't do anything against you. <laughs> You can be aware that slums is not unique, so you could install two. And that's, no, you never want two that. of us. <laughs> <laughs> wow, with these Gagarin decks and the slums magic that y'all put together, there are some people that are gunning for the scientist title that Jonas currently holds or, or held at one point, being the architect of potatoes. Mad Several science minds. 
it doesn't surprise me at all that Jonas would be behind potatoes. There were several clever things that were going on in this world that I don't think that he can claim credit for. Well, I, I mean, obviously the snare bears, Gagarin. Yeah, that's fair. It's fun seeing the innovation. It's fun seeing the decks come out of testing and perform extremely well at Worlds and not look like you expected, but be, yeah. you know, be amazing. Yeah, I think the ban list did a good job of creating a meta that was that allowed for that, you know, without being radically different. It allowed for quite yeah. a bit of testing. Uh, it's quite nice. It's a good job. It'll be interesting to see what the next iteration does because it seems to me like the meta is in a pretty cool place and... If it needs a shakeup, the shakeup is new cards. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. Yeah. That's completely right. That clears my good name. My takes are back. Or it puts to your being name bad. back in the dirt. My takes are back to being as bad as they always were. And I guess with that settled, should we transition to the next segment? Oh, yes. Absolutely. I think it's time for our longest running, most important. Blah, our longest running, important. most important. Yeah, important. Shit, I got to start this whole thing over again. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I, I did not need to do it's, that. <laughs> it's fine. Yes, I think it's time for our longest running, most important as... F <laughs> Jesus Christ, what the fuck? I cannot <laughs> speak today. Important okay. sounds like a legal thing. It sounds like something know, that you don't want does, to happen to you at the border. Like <laughs> You've been important. Right. <laughs> oh, God, no. Oh, no. Ooh. 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 All right, one more shot here. Oh, yes, I think it's time to transition to our longest running. Most important, as far as tournament impact goes, segments. The one that we classically spend the most time on. We mm -hmm. discuss the ins and outs, how it's going to affect tournament play, how it's going to affect the meta, how people are going to react to it. All of these things probably going to take longer than the rest of the episode combined and maybe more than the rest of all of our previous episodes combined considering our current guest if there's one thing that we definitely won't do it is say one word each and then move on absolutely so you know it you love it it's time for banner nab and this week on banner nab we've had rotom come on and select a card for our consideration. Rotom, what is that card? Advanced Assembly Lines. Ban. 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 Moving on. The next segment, classically always a much shorter segment than Banner Nab, the bad card of the week that's still bad and you still shouldn't play it. We had the world champ choose a bad card of the week that's still bad and you still shouldn't play it as well. What is that choice? Corporate sales team. Corporate sales team. Why is corporate sales team the bad card of the week that's still bad and you still shouldn't play it? It's not off-world office or Cyberdex sandbox. Fair. To throw into the mix pad tap, I suppose, is the other... Uh... Oh, God. There's a whole discussion to have of... It does give you 10 credits. How much worse is it to get 10 credits over five full turns than it is to get seven immediately? But then they unbanned pad tap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they made it not interesting anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. I would like to give both players 10 credits and maybe give the runner 30. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> oh, in our previous segment, while we were talking about this, where I said if you ban one of the other Tempo Forward agendas, you could just slot in Sales Team. Maybe play the <laughs> Yeah, I was, I was not considering Pad Tap. And now that you bring up Pad Tap, I'm like... Uh, no, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. You'd have to ban both. You'd have to ban one of the tempo forward agendas and you'd have to reban pad tap. 
Oh, and then you have to play remote enforcement uh, architect deployment test, whatever that other one is called. You would play those thing. over corporate sales team? No, honestly, I'm not sure what I would do. Probably play a different deck at that point. I mean, I guess there is an argument for Vitruvius. It's certainly not seven credits immediately, unconditionally. I did test out corporate sales team before PadTap showed up. It was okay, but we did find that yeah, the game ended with money on corporate mm-hmm. sales team quite a lot of the time. So Right, so if it isn't actually giving you the 10 credits, what's sure. the point? That's it, yeah. yeah. It's just a slow off-world office or, or even worse. Now I'm going to take the focus off of the bad card of the week, but still bad, and you still shouldn't play it for a second here. But do you think that the PD deck falls apart when you ban one of the other Temple Forward agendas, and this can't take its place? I think not one of them. I think it was more of a jokingly made comment, if you banned both, and then I think it would start to struggle. I think if you ban one of them, I think it's slightly worse. It'll find something else to play, whether it is Vitruvius or maybe Sales Team if PadTap had gone again, or uh, maybe something spicier. I think banning both of them would cause a problem. It would lose out on a lot of what it does well at the moment. It's tough to spend so much of your time focusing on resing ice and scoring the agenda. If you can't bounce back, it's very tough, I have to think. Deck is pretty uh, pretty lean, poor economically. You don't often have lots of money to spare. You know, you don't yeah. you don't feel rich like Asmari, so you definitely need everything you can get from your scores. Off of PD and talking about like other decks, say the magical thing happens and pad tap gets banned. Is there any other deck that would consider corporate sales team? I think if you ban Sandbox or something like that, maybe some Acer decks could consider it, maybe even some Yellow Glacier, but then they're probably just playing six, five, threes. So yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe PD, maybe some other HP lists. It feels weird to say, doesn't it, for a card that was such a gold standard of 4-2 power years yeah. ago. It was such a ubiquitous, such a good it was, agenda. It was the Asmari agenda for so long, yeah. Yeah. It was the first agenda that you were happy to score. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much apart well, from Nisei. Yeah, Nisei. Apart course, from yeah. Nisei or Astro. And, and Astro, mean, yeah. yeah. Astro exists. And honestly, you know, if you weren't if you weren't excited to fire an ABT, it was because you were potentially going to lose the game off of a flip. Yeah. You know, Melvin's done that. He's yeah, he's yeah. fired an ABT I, and put six poor, points in the garbage. Poor Melvin. <laughs> I think this is the fourth or fifth time we've told that story. We just are continually dunking on this man. Just every time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what? As my longtime sparring partner, I believe I've earned the right. We've all been there, though. We've all done it, haven't we? Oh, yes. What decks would want corporate sales team over off-world office? I guess the answer is you would want to be a deck that goes very long, so you reliably do get all 10 of those credits. And the decks that are going very long, I wouldn't want that in Ag Infusion, I don't think. I think you need the money immediately so that you can res your gigantic red ice. Yeah, I think maybe you're playing it in decks that are already playing three off-world office. I think your thought of it needs to be like Sandbox gets banned, for instance. I think that's the only world in which we really see it come back. This is a very crowded niche, isn't it? These four twos that that give you money. So It didn't used to be a crowded... (laughs) You used to sort of scramble around trying to find anything to fill your agenda suite after playing three NAPDs and like your three broken agendas. It'll be like, Mm -hmm. what do I do now? You know, priority (laughs) requisition? <laughs> Corporate war, you know. Yeah, there wasn't much, was there? But now it's super crowded. Four twos are just so powerful. Especially- kind of cool that four twos are really powerful. Let's given how historically bad they've been. When is Nisei going to revolutionize three ones now? Make those good. It'd be amazing if they could, because that is a very tough type of agenda to fit in your deck. They were in sports for a little bit. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I remember playing a PD list right when Gateway came out that had three of the superconducting hub to get really oh, big hand cool. sizes. Yeah. yeah. The eight card hand size and then trigger void as many times as you wanted. Ooh, it wasn't that good. Yeah. Right. I guess the problem there is you're spending time scoring a 3 1 when you could just spend time winning yeah. the game by scoring a two yeah. pointer and a two pointer and a three pointer. Yeah. But if they would have brought Game Changer back. Yeah, you'd see more three ones if they brought Game Changer back. That's true. Superconducting hub in sports would have been fire, is all I'm saying. It would have been especially good because just think of how many freaking cards you could pitch to Audacity with Superconducting hubs scored. There you six, go. Yeah, six or seven. You could just instantly I, bin like 17 points. Love that waste. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I suppose because corporate sales team can't help you put more cards in the garbage, that's why you're saying it's garbage because... The best thing you can do in Netrunner is throw cards in the garbage. It's yeah. one of three. Yeah, okay. that's exactly okay. right. All right. <laughs> do we have anything more to say about corporate sales team? I don't. No, not desperately. It's just, it used to be good. It's not as good as it used to be. A little bit of power creep, a little bit of not what you want. It's too slow. A little bit uh, of bad tap. Poor corporate sales team. How the mighty have fallen. Mm-hmm. Poor but I, I 100% agree. It is a worthy choice for the bad card of the week that's still bad and you still shouldn't play it. With that, I believe we've reached the end of this episode. So I guess let's start off with a reminder that if you liked what you heard on the Slumscast today, then go ahead and follow the Slumscast. You can do that in just about every major podcast distribution network. If you want us to show up to more people, then go ahead and rate us some number of stars and leave a comment in whatever podcast distribution network you use. If you don't want the Slumscast to appear to more people, then I guess don't do those things. We have merch. You can check out the merch using the link that you see in the show notes. All of the proceeds from merch goes to charity. Special thanks this episode go to Patrick. Patrick, thank you so much for being on the Sumscast with us. Yeah, thank you. I really enjoyed it, actually. It was a lot of fun. Glad to hear that. Do you have any shout-outs you'd like to give while you're here? Oh, uh, I could shout out Laura again, just so that she definitely yeah. can't miss the fact that I've, yeah, that I've done it. All of the snare bears, that is a fantastic time just testing and having fun in the meta. That's kind of the first year that I've been part of a testing group, as it were. So that was really good. And also to the tournament organizers and the streamers, I thought the quality of the streaming and the commentary was extremely good. It's something I've tried myself and been okay at it, but I think the best commentators make it seem so easy and it really isn't. As you know, it really isn't easy to uh, thank you that was extremely good so also quick interjection here shout out to pants for forgetting to say that this podcast is not weekly but the bad card of the week that's still bad and you still shouldn't play it is a suggestion specific to this week so you can't play it is the it week this, that this podcast come is it this uh, time no. that's I, I i feel like until a new ban list it's it's gonna stay there all right all right fine thought i was gonna try to be clever <laughs> anyway you should probably do the outro Yep, let's do the outro. So once again, this has been the Slums Guest. This has been the world champion of Netrunner, Patrick Auer, Rotom Appliance. Fantastic having him on. If you have any questions or comments for us, then the best place to reach us is, you'll just look in the show notes. Why am I saying this right now? We, we've got all of the ways there. You can contact us there if you have any questions or comments, but if you have any concerns, and we'll just have the episode in there. Yeah, we did talk about Netrunner quite a lot, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs>